Well, I'm excited tonight for tonight because it's like rightly so Christmas and worship collide, you know, and really the Christmas songs for the most part are worship songs, very awesome worship songs to our Lord and Savior. So I'm excited for tonight. Just it's the first time we've done this. Usually we have like a children's play or something going on, but this year we decided just to have worship. So hopefully you guys can make it back and invite your friends and family. It's not like, hey, no one's going to preach to you, man. We're just singing Christmas songs. So it's a great way for the Spirit of God to work even amongst Christmas songs. So, Because, again, they're worshiping the Lord. So hopefully you guys can make it back. All right. So tonight, or excuse me, right now, go ahead and open your Bibles to Isaiah as we look at the last section of Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to focus on verse 7. If you've been here for the month, we've been... We really just went through this only this text, verses 1 through 7, and this is the fourth week on it. And like I said, we are just going to focus on verse 7, and I'm excited about it. I was thinking about the, the title of the message is now, but not yet. And I'll explain it in a moment, but think of it like Christmas. Christmas is now, right? We're celebrating Christmas now, but it's not Christmas yet. It's now, but not yet. You get Does that make sense? It's a season, we're celebrating everything about Christmas, but it's not really here. We want it to be here, and then when it leaves, we're, at least I am, I'm totally bummed that it's, I have the post-Christmas blues. I'm like putting it on coast, oh, they still have some Christmas music. Never, I forget, I could just play it, Christmas music, anytime nowadays, so. But in this message today, we're going to see that the kingdom of God is now, but not yet. This is what Isaiah is talking about. Again, he's talking to ancient Israel about the future, which is now our past. So Christ's coming, the Messiah's coming, was future for them. His first coming for us is past, and now we look forward to his second coming. Right? So the kingdom of God is now, but not yet. And I'll explain it as we go through this morning. Let's pray, though, before we start. Lord God, we are so thankful that we have this great opportunity, as John was praying for our brothers and sisters who are suffering around the world and meeting in secret, that we have the ability to meet openly. And Lord, let us take advantage of every opportunity while it is still light before the darkness comes. For we know, Lord God, as prophesied in Scripture, that there will be a time when our meeting will be in secret, Lord, for the world will be persecuting us. I pray, Lord, now that we as Christians would take the opportunity to proclaim your name openly, to learn of you, to strengthen our faith, Lord God, for those days ahead. So, Father God, we pray that your spirit would minister to us in a powerful way and transform our lives, that we would leave this place different than the way that we came in. As we sung, that we would desire even more to hunger for you and thirst for you and be satisfied in the power of your spirit and in the proclamation of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 9. Is everyone there? All right, I'm not. Hold on. Well, let's read it. I'll read, the, I'll read it, and then we'll just focus on verse 7. Remember, Isaiah's prophesying to ancient Israel, specifically King Ahaz, of the impending doom or how God has dealt with them, and now in the future he's going to bless them. And he says this, But there will be no more gloom for her, speaking of Israel, who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali with contempt. 
But later on, he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. And they will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult. A cloak rolled in blood and will be for burning fuel for the fire. So he's prophesying of what's to come. When is this going to come? How is this going to come? And he says in verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given. The government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's a coming Messiah Israel was looking forward to. There's going to be all these things. And when he comes, what's going to happen? Look, verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness for then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. A great prophecy that we as believers believe and know that this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ at his first coming. But if you look at it again and you can understand why those who do not believe Jesus is the Messiah and are still looking for him, you may wonder why is that? Well, if you look at this prophecy literally, remember John talked about this rightly so that it was a poetic prophecy It's poetry to a certain extent, so it's not to be taken fully literally or literal. Look at some of these things that the prophecy says, and if you look at Jesus, you might think, well, yeah, he he didn't do that, if you look at it in a wooden, literal fashion. I mean, where is the government of the Messiah? It says here that it would reign forever, and it would increase. Where's the Messiah? He's not on this earth right now, is he? Or how is the Messiah's government going to increase if he's not even here? And where is the peace? Where is justice? Where is righteousness that Isaiah is prophesying about? And where is the throne of David? Is there anybody sitting on it literally right now? You see those questions. Can you answer those questions to maybe a Jewish person who would ask, if Jesus is the Messiah, tell me, Where is his government? Where's the throne of David? Where's this kingdom? Where's this peace and rejoicing that we're supposed to have? What does that mean? And I'm going to show you in a few moments, and hopefully I do it well, that you will see that the kingdom of God is now, but not yet. So follow along. This is important stuff. So let's look at this. The kingdom of God, I'm going to say, is now I'm going to say... And you guys do believe it, I think, to a certain extent, that verse 7 is already true. That's what we worship about. That's what we sing about. That's what we celebrate December 25th and really every day of the year as believers, that for unto us a child is born. We've already shown you over the past few weeks this prophecy is about Jesus. How does he fulfill these things, if not in a literal way? 
So let's look at this together, going back to verse 7. Let's look at the first one. His government, is, we're told, will not stop increasing. It's going to increase, meaning it's not going to decrease. It's not going to stop. It's going to get bigger. And we learned a few weeks ago, if you were here, that the government, that word means dominion or rule. So the dominion or rule of this child who we believe is Jesus Christ is going to increase. It's not going to decrease. So what does that mean exactly? How is the kingdom of God increasing? How is his rule increasing if he's literally not here right now physically? Well, let's go back before we go forward here and go to 2 Samuel chapter 7 because I want to look at how this was prophesied to King David by Nathan the prophet. So go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Isaiah is just reiterating this prophecy or this promise or declaration. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12. We're going to be flipping to a lot of verses, so get your fingers ready. I want to hear a lot of. Unless you, thank you. At least pretend. Maybe you have your app on your phone. It can make that sound. Second Samuel chapter 7. Starting in verse 12. Look at what it says. He says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, this is what God is telling Nathan to tell David. He says, when, again, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. Now, this is at the beginning of the time of the kings. And you and who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He's talking about David's literal son, King Solomon. And he will build a house for my name. Solomon was the one that built the temple, if you remember. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house, speaking of David, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So look at that for a second here. What is God saying? He's saying, David, your throne's going to be established forever. Does that mean David is going to live forever? You can't take that in a wooden, literal sense. What is he talking about? What he's saying is that David's house and kingdom shall endure before God. You know, before God, you're standing before the presence of God. He said, in God's, in God's eyes, David's kingdom is going to last forever. Meaning a long time, right? When my kids, or uh, my littlest one, Jonathan, particular six, he thinks going anywhere on the freeway means it's going to take what? Forever. A long time. And sometimes it does, depending on what freeway you're on and where you're going. A long time. But it's more than a long time here. He's saying forever, as we're seeing, and that your throne, your authority will be established forever. A long time. Not only that, it also can mean that it's, an out, that it's a guaranteed outcome. That no matter what happens between David's reign and eternity, in the end, David, your throne will be established forever. This is what he's talking about. 
And so now we come back to the prophecy in Isaiah, and he's continuing that, saying the throne of David, as we'll see in a few months, is going to last forever. And I'll show you that even longer. Hopefully that makes sense. So the dominion, the rule of Christ is going to be a long time. It's going to be guaranteed in the end forever. And Jesus was the fulfillment as this prophecy, as I mentioned. But I want to show you a few verses in the New Testament, how the New Testament writers saying that that prophecy was happening first century, meaning now during the church age when it began. So turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, looking at verses 30 through 33. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary. And look at what he says. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 30, he says this. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God, look at this, will give him the throne of his father David and his reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Jesus' rule and his dominion, when he came, is the New Testament writers quote Gabriel saying it's going to last forever, meaning it's never going to end a long time. The outcome is guaranteed. This is how we as Christians believe the Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus now, but not yet, as we'll see in a few moments. So the archangel, the angel Gabriel is saying Jesus is given the throne of David and he's going to rule forever when? At the birth, right when he's born, he's king forever. His rule and dominion will last forever and it will have no end, he's saying. If you're a born-again believer, you believe that. Or you should. Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy. But there's something interesting about the kingdom of God. As I said in the very beginning, well, where is it? We don't see it literally, do we? It almost seems like the kingdom of Satan is winning. What did Jesus say in the Gospel of John? Chapter 18, turn there with me and you'll find something interesting. A lot of bumper stickers with this on it. And I hope it makes a lot more sense now. John 18, starting in verse 33. When Jesus was standing before Pilate, he says this, starting in verse 18, excuse me, John 18, verse 33. I want to read this one first. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me and you have or what have you done? Look at what Jesus says. Jesus answered and says, my kingdom is what? Not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. That's what the Old Testament prophets were writing about. And those in the first century don't see it. 
And even today, people don't see that that's what Jesus meant. His kingdom is now, but it's not of this world. In the future, it will be of this world. And that's why I said it's now, but not yet. Go back to the Gospel of Luke, and there's something else that I want to show you about the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. says this, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. So even back then, everyone, everyone wanted to know, when's the kingdom of God coming? When's it coming? And he answered and said, the kingdom of God, look at this, is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look here, or look, here it is, or there it is. He says, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's not of this realm. It's not of this world. It's in your midst. It's here. It's now. Jesus, I'm not making this stuff up. If you thought, well, what's he talking about now? Not yet. Jesus said it's now. It's in your midst. It's here. What is he talking about? The, the government that will not stop increasing is now in Jesus Christ. And it's in our midst. So how do you enter into the kingdom of God? If you can't see it, there's no gates to walk through. Well, I have an answer for you. Go to the Gospel of Mark. I told you we're going to flip around a lot. Mark chapter 1. Look at verse 14. Look at what Jesus says about the kingdom of God. He says, now after John had been taken into custody, this is Mark 1.14, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The way to enter the kingdom of God is through repentance and belief. Once you repent of your sins, believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior who God sent who died and rose again and ascended into heaven, you are in the kingdom of God. Now, but not yet. It's going to become an even fuller way at the end of time, which we'll see in a few moments. So don't think that I'm saying the kingdom of God is it and that's it. We're here. This is, this is paradise, people. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Okay, Norco, California is not paradise close but not real close (laughs) so his government i hope you see is not of this world right now it came and began at his first coming and what we're talking about is his rule and dominion and if you think about it well let's take it literally doesn't his rule and dominion increase every time somebody believes at every new believer it's increasing because he rules and reigns in the hearts of men and women. So literally, you could say, yes, it does increase every time. I want to say every time a bell rings. <laughs> every time somebody believes the kingdom of God increases, his government and rule increases. The more that we submit to him, it increases. So it does get fulfilled literally just not in the way that we expected 
So I hope that helps in that sense. So the government, going back to our text in Isaiah 9, verse 7, his government will not stop increasing. It means that his rule and dominion will not stop. It continues on and on and on. And it really does reign forever. Once he came and established it, it will never stop. It will always increase. Christ has been ruling for now close to 2,000 years in the, in this, between his first and second advent. So let's look at the second one here and going back to our text in Isaiah. But keep your finger in Luke because we're coming right back. So there will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. The dominion of Christ, the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Christ brings peace. And as you can already guess by what I've said already, is that it's not literal in that sense. Initially, right? There's still war. We still fight. Not all of us sitting in here are always at peace, are we? There's times when we're not at peace. So what does it mean? If he's ruling and reigning, why don't I have peace? Why is the world not at peace? Didn't Jesus himself say he did not come to bring peace? So is there a contradiction? What's going on? What did he mean? Well, if you remember now, going back to the Gospel of Luke, look at chapter 2. This is what the angels proclaimed to the shepherds. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 13, he says, the angels say this. They say, and suddenly appeared, there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. But there's a, there's this thing attached to it. People stop right there. Look at what it says. And on earth, peace among with whom he is pleased. The peace only comes to those who are in the kingdom of God, not to anybody else. Not yet. So that's what we're talking about. He brings peace in his kingdom. And where does he rule and reign right now? In the hearts of men. So there is a sense that each and every one of you, including me, have a peace. And that peace first is with God. You are now at peace with God. Before you became a believer, you were not at peace with God, whether you know that or not. Right? As we've been going through Romans, you were at an enemy of God, an enmity between you and God existed. And it wasn't only until that you believed and repented of your sins that you had that peace. So let's look at a few verses pertaining to peace. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And we'll see how this, what this peace is. <clears throat> I think I may I may even start at verse 11. Sorry, Dave, up there. I'm going to start at verse 11. Just because there's so much. He says, therefore, the Apostle Paul writing to Christian believers, look at what he says. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by, by human hands, remember that you were at 
that time separated from Christ. There was a separation formally between you and Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what I was talking about. That's our state without Christ. You're separated from Christ, Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promises, and having no hope without God in the world. But now, look at this. Here's that piece. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly, or who formerly were far off, have been brought near to the by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. I love that. He is our peace. Who made both groups, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, into one. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the, by having put to death the enmity and he came speaking of Jesus and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near that peace that he's talking about is that peace between men and God that's the number one concern of God is that your relationship with him is at peace so many people want peace other ways but God goes you're not going to have that till you get this first And even if you have that, it doesn't even matter because you're at war with God. And in that sense, you may win the battle but lose the ultimate war with God. You can hold yourself away from God as long as you want, but in that final day when you stand before him, you will not have that peace that he offered. So his rule, the kingdom of God, is that peace between man and God. That's the peace that we're talking about in Isaiah and now in the New Testament as well. That's the peace God is most concerned with. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, and we look at the basis of this peace. Romans 5, just look at verses 1 and 2 real quick with me. This is the basis of peace. Therefore, Having been justified by faith, look at this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of glory of God. The peace that we have with God is based on what Christ has done, not what you do, not what anybody else does, not what your mom and dad do for you, not what your children do for you. It's based on what Christ has done. And we've already been studying that over and over before we got to the Christmas time in our study of Romans. So his rule brings peace between men and God, and it's based on what Christ has done for us. One more verse I want to share because I like this in the Gospel of John, verse 14. When Christ left, he promised his disciples, which includes us, That he's going to leave his peace with us. And that peace is in the form of the Holy Spirit that we have. 
that resides in us. Because it's the Holy Spirit that sustains our peace. Look at this in uh, John 14, starting at verse 25. He says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. Now, that's key. The peace that we have with God. Sometimes we forget about it, don't we? We forget what we have in Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit that God left with us to remind us of those things. And this is why verse 27 is true. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. I believe that we're not fearful and troubled because it's the Holy Spirit that he left with us that gives us peace because he reminds us of what Christ says. Think of how you feel after you read God's word or you worship or you have a time with God. It's that Holy Spirit that's bringing to remembrance all what Christ has done for you. And you're reminded of it. That's why we feel, at least for me, I'm like, I feel so good after I read God's word because it's the Holy Spirit reminding me of what God has done. And when I stay away from that, I lose that peace. It's there, but I'm staying away from it. And so I believe that that's how the, this prophecy in Isaiah fulfills this through Christ, who is our peace that brings peace between God and men. And then the Holy Spirit sustains it. Again, the promised peace is a spiritual peace. It's not external. It's more internal. And the good thing is it's not based on our feelings and it's not based on what's happening outside. It's it's there. It's always with us. We may not feel it because we let what's going on outside affect our peace with God, but we have it. We have it now. Again, the kingdom of God is now. We have that. He has rule and dominion over us and through us. Gives us that peace. Going back again to our text in Isaiah now. So. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government and or or of peace. And the next one is on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And we've mentioned this a little bit already. He will rule on the throne of David. We looked at that prophecy in 2 Samuel. This was the promise to David forever. Somebody will sit on the throne forever. Somebody will rule Jesus Christ, as we've seen already through a number of scriptures, he rules and reigns on the throne of David. When he was born, he assumed that title, a descendant of David, the root of Jesse, all those things. If you look through the uh, New Testament, you'll see who he's called, how he fulfills that role. And he fulfilled this when? When he came the first time. He is now sitting and ruling positionally from the throne of David. In us, the kingdom of God, you cannot see it right now. He fulfilled this at his first coming, but guess what? He's going to fulfill it or consummate it literally at his second coming. I like this. Turn with me. I I didn't give you this verse, David, but um, everyone can turn there with me. It's easy to find Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 11. I just I was just I just found this this morning. I thought it was really cool. Look at what it says. Uh, Revelation chapter 11, describing the second coming of Christ on verse 15 says, then the seventh angel sounded. 
And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. No, I'm just adding and ever. Amen. Thank you. I think I should sing it like in Latin or something. I won't do it because I don't know it. It's amen. I'm sure amen is amen. Anyways, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's when it will be fully consummated. He's coming, and he's going to assume it literally at his second coming. He will rule and reign on the throne of David. Right now it's a position, it's a title, but he will actually do it one day. And going back to our text again, the fourth point, his kingdom will be established by justice and righteousness. Look at the text, though. It says to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. So there's two things I want to point out here. Number one, but number four for your notes, is that his kingdom will be established by justice and righteousness. So when Christ came the first time and established his kingdom, at his, through his life and his death, the burial and resurrection, he established it, established it by justice and righteousness. God justly dealt with sin. If the kingdom of God is in our midst, then he had to deal with that thing that ruled the lives of men, which was sin. And as we've been studying in Romans, when Christ came and died, he justly and righteously got rid of sin, fulfilled the law of God. And so that's why we can say confidently that he established his kingdom with justice and righteousness. And the second point is his kingdom will be upheld by justice and righteousness. So he establishes it and then he sustains it with justice and righteousness. Nothing can change that about our God. God established it and sustains it and nothing can change that. I like this verse in Hebrews uh, chapter 10. This is really this is really cool. Have the women been on chapter 10 yet in Hebrews? No. Okay. This would be cool. This is cool. Hebrews uh, chapter 10 says this, starting in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Because this is talking about how Christ sustains justice and righteousness. He says, every priest, so he's talking about the Old Testament priests. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's interesting. So the Old Testament priests had to go into the, the temple over and over again to sacrifice for the sins of the people over and over again. It didn't take it away. It only did what? Covered it, right. Covered sin. Didn't literally take it away. It was covered. So this is what he's saying. Look at verse 12. I love this. But he, meaning Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, one sacrifice for all sins for all time, ever. And then look what he did. He sat down at the right hand of God. That's how he sustains. It's like it's done. I don't need to keep offering myself over and over again. 
He says, waiting from that time onward until the enemy, the enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He's perfected each and every believer that's sanctified. You, believe it or not, you are perfect. Do you feel like when we sung that song, you know, I lift my holy hands up. I'm lifting them up going, my hands are not holy on my own. But in Christ they are. He sees those hands as holy. That's like, whoa, that's amazing. And it says it right here. One time he perfected us all. I don't know if you saw that this in the news, how um, Mother Teresa was earning sainthood in the Catholic Church because they verified two miracles. Well, not to brag, but I didn't have to do any miracles to become a saint. And neither did you, because we are made saints because of what Christ has done. You don't have to do any miracles. Believing in Christ makes you a saint. We're called saints throughout the Bible. I thought that was, I was like, wow, cool. She's, she's going to become a saint. She's, if she's a believer, she's already a saint, but okay. This is what they're saying. You're perfected by what Christ has done. That's so awesome to remember. That's the kind of thing we need to be reminded of. Is right, I'm not holy. I'm in my own strength not good, and I do bad things. But in Christ, he's perfected me. He's sanctified me. Therefore, I can lift up my hands, and he sees them as holy. Amen to, for that. And then verse 15 says, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is a covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their heart and on their mind, and I will write them. He then says, and their sin and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering of sin for sin. Your sins don't need to be forgiven anymore in the sense of Christ being offered as a sacrifice. They're forgiven. He doesn't even remember them anymore. Think of all the times we can't let offenses go in our lives. Think of how we've offended God and how we do it every day and continue to do it till the day we die. He doesn't remember them because of what Christ has done. And you put your faith in him so you're sanctified, saved, and holy. That is so awesome. It's so awesome to think of and so encouraging. And, you know, to me as a believer, like a sinful believer, that, all right, even if nobody else forgives me, Christ forgives me. So his kingdom will be established and upheld by justice and righteousness. And then lastly, back to our text in Isaiah, it says, from then, when does this happen? From then on. And forevermore. Once his kingdom is established, which we've already established, came at his first coming, right? His first advent, which is what we're celebrating now. It remains forevermore. Christ forevermore now reigns and rules from heaven through his believers. And the kingdom of God will continue forever through each generation of new believer that comes in. Christ continues to reign. Nothing can change that. That is what is happening now, right now. All that is true. 
What about in the future? The kingdom is now, but not yet. Because we are promised over and over again in the New Testament that Christ is coming back again. Jesus is coming again to establish all that we have now forever, literally on this earth. John 11, or excuse me, John 14, starting in verse 11. He, he makes this promise to his disciples. <clears throat> Actually, it's verse 1, I'm sorry. John 1, John 14, verse 1. Let me get that straight. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. He promised his disciples that, hey, I'm going to leave and prepare a place for you, and, but I'm going to come back so that you can be there as well. So guess what? The kingdom is now, but it also is not yet because it's in the future. So I hope that you have a sense of, oh, I can't wait till Christ comes back. You know, like the ancient Israel couldn't wait for the Messiah to come the first time. We as New Testament believers should look forward to Christ's second coming. He's coming again. All that was prophesied in the Old Testament is now, but not yet. It's going to be consummated in a more fuller extent, uh, a, a more fuller sense. So Jesus is coming again, and because he's coming again, the Scripture tells us that our bodies that are we have right now cannot enter into heaven like this, because they're sinful, they're damaged by the effects of sin. So he's going to transform them, and we have that to look forward to. We will have, we will receive resurrected bodies. Amen. Right? Amen. First Corinthians. I know some of you are like proud of your bodies now, but you're going to get an even better one. Like I could actually like see out of both my eyes. Twenty twenty. That's going to be great. <laughs> no glasses needed. 1 Corinthians 15.50, I read this all the time, but it's, it's worth reading again over and over again. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So see that kingdom of God, if it's now, then it's also not yet. You see that he said that the kingdom of God is in the future as well. Now I say this, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, meaning die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable and this mortal will be put will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved. 
Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That was an encouragement to the church at Corinth, but it is also encouragement to you. What you're doing for Christ is not in vain. Don't give up. Because one day you're going to be rewarded handsomely in the kingdom of God with a brand new body. Awesome. And guess what? We're going to no longer suffer the effects of sin. Amen. Let's go back to Revelation for two more verses here. Revelation 21. We will finally experience that peace eternally, forever. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4 says this. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne room saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And this is the best part. And he will dwell among them. God is going to dwell with us literally. We'll see Jesus Christ. That's going to be too cool. And look at what he's going to do. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That's awesome. No more sadness. No more sickness. No more disease. All the effects of sin will be gone. And then look at verse tw- or chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. It says, then he showed me a river of the water of life. Oh, I better hurry. My iPad says low battery. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Then he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the midst of its street. On either side of the river was a tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And then here we go again. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. And look at this. And they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. Our foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. My son Jonathan will like that. No more night. I don't have to go to sleep. And there will, they will not have need of light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. That's the kingdom that's not yet. Jesus is coming to establish it here. We'll We'll receive resurrected bodies. We'll experience true peace, because all pain and suffering will be gone. And we will see the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, The Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2 how to live as we wait. Because we are now looking forward to the second advent of Christ. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, and this will be the final verse I read, I promise. 2 Peter uh, chapter 2 verse 3. Turn there with me. 
starting in verse 7, and he talks about the second coming as well, and then at the end concludes with how we should live. He says this, starting in verse 7. He says, But by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. He says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I praise God for that because I have many friends and family members who do not yet know the Lord. Think of your co-workers who do not know the Lord or your family members. If Christ was to come back today, they would be lost for all eternity. So in a sense, it's like, yeah, we want the Lord to come because I want that, but not yet. You know, I need so-and-so needs to get saved, Lord. Because it's promised once to die and then the judgment. Once you stand before God, that's it. There's no purgatory. There's no second chance. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? He goes, since this is going to happen, what should we be doing until it does? He says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening and the coming day of the Lord? because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in or by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Does that mean, oh, I got to not sin anymore? No, it means one being found in Christ. That's where you're spotless and blameless. Repent. Give your life to Christ before it's too late. And those of us that are in Christ, be diligent to work for the kingdom of God because that's all that matters. So until the second advent comes, eagerly await the Lord's return and live holy lives until he returns so that we might get every opportunity to glorify him and to be a witness to our loved ones. Amen. Let's look forward to that second advent. As we celebrate this first one, let's look forward to that second one. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we are so thankful for your word that speaks to our hearts even today. A prophecy that was written so long ago still has just intense meaning to us today. And Lord God, we stand before you as repentant sinners. And we're so thankful that in you we are found spotless and blameless and holy and righteousness and sanctified. All because of what you have done and we've just believed and repented of our sins. And Lord God, I pray for those in this room this morning who maybe have never done that. I pray that they would take this as a warning that you are coming soon like a thief in the night. But until you do, Lord God, you give them mercy and pray that you would work in their heart and they would fall down and bow down before you and cry out in repentance. 
for those of us, again, who have already done that, let us live a holy life and glorify you with all that we have. Let us stop wasting our lives with things that don't matter. May we be serious about our relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, for all that you give us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.